God has graciously hardwired into human existence a universal starting point for evangelism. It doesn't matter where you go, whether across the street or across the world, there is a starting point that every one of us can take with any person anywhere on the face of the earth. It does not matter whether you are speaking to someone who, like me and many of you, grew up here in the middle of the Bible Belt, speaking to someone who holds to some nominal form of Christianity, or, or whether you are a Hindu or talking to a Hindu from India or a Muslim from Indonesia or an agnostic up in Seattle or an atheistic communist down in Cuba where Larry is right now. It doesn't matter whether they are the most hardened, hostile, reprobate, the most unrepentant pagan that you know. All people everywhere know on a very deep, visceral, soul level three fundamental truths which profoundly disturb them in their most reflective moments. Even if they work exceedingly hard to suppress these thoughts, to suppress this knowledge and, and drive them from their consciousness. These three universal truths may be locked away somewhere deep down in their subconscious, but you can rest assured that they are there. And these three truths provide you with the universal relevance that you need to share the gospel message that you are called and commissioned to share. The first truth that is universally known and accepted is the reality of death. Whether known by cold observation or by the bitter experience of grief or loss, the reality of death cannot be denied by any rational person. No one in their right mind denies the universal truth of death. Everyone dies. No one lives forever. A person may, may spend their entire life trying to escape this truth, you know, claiming to be 39 when they're really 47 or receiving injections to try to mask those ever-increasing wrinkles on their face or using euphemisms like passing away when they're trying to speak of dying or celebration of life when they're talking about funerals. But no one can ultimately escape the ever-encroaching reality of death. Everyone, Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, agnostic, atheist, nominal Christian, everyone trembles before the reality of death. The second truth that is universally known is the existence of God as Creator. The Apostle Paul highlights this truth in the first chapter of Romans where he writes that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God, notice this, is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature 
have been clearly perceived. God is not speaking a foreign language when he speaks and declares his glory from the heavens to mankind. They've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they, humanity, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they know Him. They did not honor Him as God, nor did they give Him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Listen, it would be unjust for God to judge those who do not know Him for failing to honor Him. That would be unjust. But according to Paul, that is not the case anywhere with anyone. The basis for God's wrath being revealed against the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men is that they suppress the truth which they do in fact know. Everyone, everywhere, knows God as their creator. How? Paul says that God has displayed His eternal power and His divine nature upon the canvas of creation. God has made it plain to all mankind that He exists and that He is eternally powerful and infinitely wise. That all things that are came into being through Him. And Paul says that these invisible attributes which God has made visible in creation have been clearly perceived. New American Standard says they've been understood such that all men are without excuse before God. That's why the wrath of God is coming upon the unrighteous and the ungodly. Because although they know God, they refuse through a moral act of the will to honor Him or worship Him or glorify Him as God. And they refuse to give Him thanks. Instead, they turn away from the light. And they became foolish in their thinking and their hearts were darkened. This is the state in which you will find unregenerate man anywhere in the world. Whether Hindu or Muslim or Jew or atheist or your nominal Christian neighbor across the street. They are futile. Foolish. Enveloped in darkness. But, according to Paul, buried deep within even the most hardened believer, even the most virulent atheist, is the knowledge of God as Creator. Now they may suppress that truth in unrighteousness, but they cannot close their eyes to the canvas of creation. And they cannot stop their ears to the heavens which are declaring and pouring forth speech, declaring the glory of God day in and day out. Whether they look through the telescope into the heavens or look through the microscope into the in intricate design of the cell. All of creation is declaring God's glory and every man on earth hears it loud and clear. The third truth which is universally known is our accountability before God as judge. Paul continues in his indictment of the human race 
in Romans chapter 1 concluding with a list of sins which characterize humanity and display our depravity. Let me read this list to you and see See if it rings true with what you know of humanity as a whole and what you know of your own heart. Paul says, beginning in verse 28, that since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Does anybody find themselves free of that indictment? But then look what Paul says in verse 32. He makes a very startling claim. He says, though they, now he's talking about the same they who hear the message of creation loud and clear and see the the invisible attributes of God's eternal power and divine nature. He's talking about all humanity. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such unrighteousness are deserving of the penalty of death. Think about what that statement assumes. Paul is asserting that all people everywhere, the same group back up in verses 19 to 21 who know of God's existence and His eternal power and divine nature, they also know, down in verse 32, that there is a moral standard for humanity and that those who fall beneath this moral standard, ought to be judged worthy of death. Judged by whom? Who is qualified to judge humanity when all of humanity is under the sin and the wrath of God? The same God who created them will also judge them, and everyone knows it. All people everywhere know they are accountable to God as judge. A few verses later, Romans 2.2, Paul says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. How? How do we know that? Do we have to have the Bible to tell us what the standard of God's law is? If so, do only Jews and Christians know of our accountability to God as judge? No. Paul says that The knowledge of God as judge is universal because the knowledge of sin is universal. Let your eye fall further down the page to Romans 2.14. Paul says, for when the Gentiles, and in the course of his argument in Romans, that means people who don't have the Bible, people who don't have the book. When Gentiles who do not have the book, when they don't have the law, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law unto themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts either accuse or else excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. All people everywhere have the knowledge of sin because God has written His moral standard upon their hearts. 
It's called the human conscience. And it works either to accuse you when you keep the law or to condemn you when you violate the law. And your conscience is directed towards God and towards a coming day of judgment. In other words, your conscience doesn't make you feel guilty for violating some abstract, impersonal law of nature. People don't feel guilty for violating a law. They feel guilty for violating the law of God. Your conscience tells you intuitively that there will be a day when you will be held accountable and punished for such violations. And all people everywhere, Hindu, Muslim, Jew, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, agnostic, atheist, nominal Christian from across the street, everyone knows this deep in their soul, even if they have seared their conscience from years of rebellion and sin. So God has hardwired into the human experience a universal starting point for the proclamation of the Gospel. You can go to any culture anywhere in the world and you have a place to begin. Everyone everywhere, whether in a primitive tribe in Malawi or a humanistic group on a university campus or a nominal Christian in the buckle of the Bible belt, everyone everywhere knows the reality of death by common experience. They know God as Creator through the testimony of creation. And they know God as Judge through the testimony of their own conscience. And this universal danger and universal knowledge of God, the universal danger of death combined with the universal knowledge of God as creator and judge works to create within the human heart, every one of them, a fear that is universal. Deep in their souls, everyone everywhere fears death. Why? Because they fear God. Why? Because they fear His righteous judgment. Why? Because they know that they're sinners and deserving of condemnation. Now they may seek to deny this universal fear or delude themselves into thinking that the coming judgment holds no terror for them, but ultimately their efforts prove ineffective. But then you come along with a message that the God who is their creator and judge, which rings true down deep in their soul, has also become their redeemer and savior in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again to rescue them from death and the judgment to come, which they fear so greatly. Now, in their futile minds and their foolish hearts, they may reject your message as irrelevant and they may persecute you as the messenger But rest assured, your message is not irrelevant. Your message, the message of the Gospel, rings true somewhere deep, deep in their souls. The Gospel is the most universally relevant message in the world because everyone knows Hebrews 9.27, even if they've never read the Bible. It is appointed to man to die once, And then comes the judgment. And everyone knows the gnawing fear which that universal knowledge produces. 
And I wonder, as I was praying this morning, I wonder if some of you here this morning are afflicted by the same gnawing fear. You fear death. You fear judgment. You fear coming face to face before your Creator and Judge. Therefore, you cannot face death with confidence. You cannot say to live is Christ and to die is gain. You don't know if it is gain. You suspect it might be loss. You tremble at the thought of terminal illness, the diagnosis of cancer. You wake up in the middle of the night, not every night, but with enough regularity to disturb you. You wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat at the thought of death and judgment and your precarious position before God. But you quickly push that thought away. You comfort yourself with the memory of some some decision you made way back when in years past or some religious work that you do or you just distract yourself by turning your smartphone on. But you know that such measures will never ultimately suffice because the fear always comes creeping back. I have good news for you today. I have a gospel. But first, we need to stare down the reality of the coming judgment. We need to own up to the danger which faces all of mankind, great and small, and every person in this room. Then and only then can I show you the way of escape that is found at the very end of this text. This morning I want to walk through this passage and highlight five elements of John's vision of the final judgment. Five elements of this vision. The first element that catches John's Gaze is the judge himself. It's the first thing that he sees. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated upon it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. We've seen this throne before back in Revelation 4 and 5, which themselves were based on Old Testament visions in Daniel 7 and Ezekiel 1. The throne is white, John tells us denoting the holiness of God and His his righteousness to judge. In Revelation, the one who is seated upon the throne is invariably God the Father. But if you've read the New Testament and paid attention, you know that the New Testament repeatedly says that the judgment at the end of the age belongs to the Son. Matthew 25, 31-46. Then the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne and all the earth will be brought to stand before Him in judgment. John 5, the Father judges no one, but He's entrusted all judgment to the Son. And many more verses beside. Don't be troubled by that. This is not a contradiction. For one thing, the vision of Revelation 20 is just that. It's a vision. It's not intended to show us everything there is to see about the final judgment. And for another thing, in Revelation, even though the Father is consistently the one who is in the, on the throne, it consistently says that the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, with the Father, reigning and ruling and judging. 
The best way to understand who is going to judge at the end of the age is to take Paul's words to the Athenians at face value. Acts 17 verse 30. Paul says to a group of unbelieving pagans who have no common beliefs with Judaism or with this new nascent Christian faith. So how in the world is he going to relate to these pagan Athenian philosophers? Ah, Good thing God has hardwired into human existence the knowledge of death and God is creator and God is judge. Turn back to Acts 17 this afternoon and you will see that's exactly where Paul starts with people who do not share his worldview. Death and judgment. Paul concluded his sermon on Mars Hill by saying, the times of ignorance God overlooked But now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising them from the dead. God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through the man Christ Jesus whom He raised from the dead. God will judge the world through the risen Lord Christ. John proceeds to say that from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Signifying that the judgment is going to follow what I can only describe as the dissolution, the dissolving, of the present created order in preparation for the arrival of the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth that we will find in the very next chapter next week. The same idea was found back in chapter 6 and verse 14 where John says that the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. And in chapter 16 and verse 20 where he said that every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. Peter described it like this, 2 Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the words that are done, works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. It's hard to imagine what it looks like for heaven and earth to pass away. What does it look like for the earth and sky to flee away from Him who sits on the throne? Well, it's difficult to imagine what it might look like, but that didn't stop C.S. Lewis from trying. And I will uh, read a part of his fictional description of this event in the last battle next week. So the first thing we see is the judge. Secondly, we see the judged. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Now, premillennialists, I'm going to ring this bell one more time and I'm going to leave it alone after that. Premillennialists typically believe that this judgment described here affects only the unbelieving wicked because in their end times framework, the righteous were raised at the beginning of the thousand years, were judged at that time by Christ in a totally separate judgment, and then they entered into 
this 1,000-year millennial kingdom on the earth. Now, for reasons I've already given you over the past two weeks, I reject that framework as unbiblical. But for our purposes today, let me just simply point out that Scripture uniformly and without exception teaches that there is one and only one resurrection of the body, followed by one and only one judgment of the righteous and the wicked. Now, I could, I could bring forth any number of texts, but one is going to suffice for today. And it's a passage, actually, that this passage in Revelation 20 is based on. It's Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where the prophet says, The angel says to Daniel, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. So there's going to be a a resurrection of whom? Well, some are going to go to shame, and some are going to go to everlasting contempt, and some are going to go to everlasting life. So there is one resurrection of the righteous who will be raised to a resurrection of shame and contempt. And some, the righteous, who will be raised to a resurrection of life. Jesus said exactly the same thing in John 5.29. So clearly, the righteous and the wicked are raised and judged together. All who partake of the first death, which is universal, will partake of the second resurrection, the resurrection of the body, which is also universal, and will stand before God in judgment. Nevertheless, the focus of this judgment scene is on the unbelieving and the wicked because in chapter 21 we'll focus on the righteous. This is evidenced by the statement in verse 13 that the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Okay? That the sea gave up the dead who were in it points to the comprehensiveness of the resurrection. Even those who aren't in the graves, even those who were denied a proper burial, just thrown overboard into the sea, will be raised to face judgment. Death in Hades refers to the temporary abode. We talked about this in the Connect group this morning. It refers to the temporary abode of the wicked dead. It's the place where the rich man went in the rich man and Lazarus, the story Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 16. It's the temporary abode of the dead as opposed to the permanent, eternal punishment of the lake of fire. At the time of judgment, death and Hades will give up all of their dead, and then they will be cast into the lake of fire. And all of the dead, the seed, death, Hades, all of the dead will be raised, will be gathered before the throne for judgment. The great and the small will stand together. Note that. The rich and the poor, the master and the slave, the Jew and the Gentile. Your status in life, your power, prestige, position, influence, it's going to mean nothing on that day. There is no partiality with God. You will be raised on the last day and you will stand before the throne of God's judgment. Every one of you and me. We'll stand side by side before the king. The question is, are you prepared? 
Thirdly, John describes the judgment itself. Continuing in verse 12, he says, And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So there are books. And there's a book. The books contain the heavenly records of our deeds which will serve as an indictment against every man, every woman. For as Paul asserts in Romans 3, there is none righteous, not even one. There's no one who does good, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So these records are complete and they are comprehensive and they overlook nothing. Matthew 12.36, Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they utter. You ever uttered any careless words? Words that you threw out intending to harm? Words that you threw out hoping to impress? Words that you threw out wishing you could rein them back in, but you can't? We're going to answer for them. Every sin of commission, the evil you've actually done. Every sin of omission, the good which you ought to have done but did not, will be read. Every evil action, every evil word, every evil thought, every secret lust, every secret grudge, Every hatred, every envy, all covetousness, every blasphemy, everything that you have worked so hard to keep hidden from everyone else will be dragged into the light of God's judgment when the books are opened and your indictment is read. And there will be no defense on that day. You will not utter a word except to plead guilty before the throne of God's judgment. In other words, there is no hope in the books. If you base your hope of eternity on the books, some vague delusion that the books will contain for you the record of your righteousness that somehow will outweigh the record of your sins and your unrighteousness, that somehow your morality, your merit, your religious service, the fact that you're better than other people that you can think of, if your hope of eternity rests in the books, then you will stand before God on that day viscerally aware that all of your supposed righteousness are nothing. They will be worth no more than filthy rags before the blazing purity of a holy God. Your hopes in the books will be dashed and you will be damned. There's no hope in the books. But there's a book. And it's called the book of life. And in it are not written deeds, but names. And as we will see in a moment, this book alone is able to answer the indictments of this book. This book 
is calling for the sentence of your death. This book speaks life. Your only hope of salvation on the day of judgment lies in your name being found inscribed in the book. And we'll return to that book as we close. Fourth, John describes the fate of the damned. And it is terrifying. Is the lake of fire. Verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Oh God, may the gravity of those words fall upon us with great weight right now. Come, Holy Spirit. Death in Hades could refer to personified symbols. I had a question as I read this text. How are death and Hades thrown into the lake of fire? Aren't they places? How is a place thrown into the lake of fire? Well, I think they're personified symbols. Greg Beale writes that as the forces which held sway following the first physical death, they are now ended and they are replaced by the eternal punishment in the lake of fire. Unbelievers formerly held in the temporary bonds of death in Hades will be handed over to the permanent bonds of the lake, in fi- lake of fire. The temporary prison will be demolished and in its place will be constructed the everlasting prison. In this case, death in Hades would be personified symbols, kind of like the beast which personified the evil state or the false prophet which personified false religion in league with the beast. They were cast into the lake of fire. How can a system be cast into the lake of fire? And yet they were in chapter 19 and verse 20. Same things going on here. The Apostle Paul personified death in 1 Corinthians 15 when he called death the last enemy to be destroyed by Christ at His coming. 1 Corinthians 15.26 He referred to it as an enemy which has lost its sting and has been swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15.54 Or... Death in Hades could refer to the demonic powers which hold sway over that temporary prison, the regions of hell and the bottomless pit. The views really are not incompatible. Both could be part of John's meaning. But we're absolutely sure about what the lake of fire means. It's a symbol for eternal punishment. And we know that based upon the earlier passage in Revelation 14, verses 9 to 11. Just close your eyes for a second. Don't even look at it. Just close your eyes for a second. I want to read this passage to you. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Look up here. Try 
to wrap your mind and heart around the terrible nature of an everlasting fire. Whatever the precise nature of eternal punishment, I conclude that it can only be described as eternal, forever and ever, conscious, they have no rest day or night, torment, they will be tormented with fire and sulfur. What is the lake of fire? It is unveiled, unending exposure to the holy and righteous wrath of God directed towards you. It does not and cannot refer to annihilation. It refers to eternal suffering that is spiritual because we're separated from the mercy and compassion of God. It is psychological because it is conscious and they have no rest. And it is physical because they will enter into the lake of fire in resurrected bodies that can never die. Thomas Watson, 17th century Puritan, contemplating the horrifying reality of the lake of fire, wrote these words, Thus it is in hell. They would die, but they cannot. The wicked shall always be dying, but never dead. The smoke of the furnace ascends forever and ever. Oh, who can endure thus to be ever upon the rack? This word ever breaks the heart. And I pray it would break yours. But I told you that I have good news for you this morning. I have a gospel, and I'm now ready to tell it. Because there is another book besides the books of our deeds. God's indictment of our sin. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The full name of this book is the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. Revelation 13.8 and 17.8 tell us that names were written in this book before the foundation of the world. And that everyone whose name is not found written in this book will worship the beast. Revelation 20.15 records that anyone whose name is not found written in the book will be cast into the lake of fire. So everything therefore rides upon your name being found in this book. It doesn't matter what circumstances you came in this morning facing. It doesn't matter what circumstances you face when you walk out of these doors. It doesn't matter who's playing who this afternoon in the football game. It doesn't matter what's going on at work. It doesn't matter what's going on at home. The only thing that matters for you in this moment and eternally is, is your name in the book? So two questions that have supreme relevance to every one of us here this morning that I want to answer. Number one, what is it about the book that brings eternal life to those whose names are written in it instead of the eternal death that they deserve? What is it about the book? And secondly, how can I get my name in the book? Well, the answer to the first question what is it about this book that brings eternal life instead of eternal death is found in the book's title. It is the book of life of the Lamb that was 
slain. The book, in other words, is the heavenly register of all those for whom the Lamb of God was slaughtered in order to purchase their redemption by His blood. The book is sprinkled with the atoning blood of the Lamb of God. And therefore, everyone whose name is found written in the book is covered in the blood. Imagine, if you will, that at the judgment, when the books are opened and the indictments are read and the remembrance of your sins causes Him who is seated upon the throne to burn afresh with holy wrath, ready to burst forth upon you as floodgates from a dam upon your head as you stand guilty before His throne. He is a veritable reservoir of divine wrath that will never be expended but continually refills the lake of fire. But then another book is opened. The book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And as the angelic clerk scans the register, his finger falls upon your name. And at that moment, the Lord Jesus Christ, the slaughtered Lamb and the risen King rises from His throne and He walks to your side. And He turns to address the court. This is one of my sheep. One of my sheep for whom I laid down my life. His redemption I have purchased with my blood. And at the words of the Lamb of God and at the remembrance of His beloved Son's beautiful sufferings upon the cross, His agony, His obedience, His death, the wrath of Him who sits upon the throne melts into a holy joy. And Him who sits upon the throne calls out to His angelic attendants, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Remove His filthy garments and clothe Him in spotless robes. My Son has purchased His pardon and with His payment I am well pleased. And then your advocate turns to you with a smile on his face and he says, Enter, my beloved into the kingdom that has been prepared for you from the foundations of the world. That's how the book of life rescues sinners from the book of death. It is a beautiful, bloody book. The answer to the second question, how does one get their name in the book? It's a bit of a trick question, really. According to Revelation 13.8 and 17.8, the names were written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. In other words, the names were written in the book of life before any man or woman existed and before anyone had done anything either good 
or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works but because of Him who calls Romans 9.11. In other words, the book of life is the register of God's elect and the names were inscribed according to God's sovereign purpose and His eternal decree not because of any foreseen merit or foreseen faith in us. So in one sense, the answer to the question of how does one get their name written in the book is that you don't. It's either there or it's not. And the book of life remains closed, shut, and sealed until the final day of judgment. And no one but he who wrote it and he who shed his blood upon it and he who seals those whose names are inscribed within it knows the contents of that book. So if you're asking how to get your name written in the book, you're asking the wrong question. The book is not for your eyes. You must let God be God. But that does not mean that you cannot know whether your name is written in the book. For God, in His unfathomable mercy, has issued to you, every one of you, an invitation in light of the coming judgment and the threat of everlasting death. And the invitation is found at the end of this book. Revelation 22.17 The Spirit and the Bride speak directly to you. And they say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who thirsts come. And let the one who desires take of the water of life without price. So listen to me. Don't worry about the book you Respond to the invitation. If you want to live and not die this morning, you may come. The water of life is free and gracious and abundantly and sufficiently supplied by the saving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All you must do, it is free without price. All you must do is come to Him and believe. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Lamb of God. Believe that His blood is sufficient to atone for your sins. Embrace His righteousness like a, like a spotless garment that covers the shame of your sin come to Jesus and call on his name and cry out to him for mercy and grace and pardon and forgiveness and life the invitation it is real and it is free and it is universal Christ died so that I could stand here this morning and say you need not die in the lake of fire you may come and that invitation has all of the authority of the Godhead behind it. You come to Jesus today, this morning. Believe in Him and He will show Himself your advocate and your mediator on the day of judgment. He will be your refuge. He will be your hiding place. He will be your cleft in the rock when the coming storm of God's wrath breaks upon this earth. You come to Jesus and then, then, in the wonder of sovereign grace... If you come to Jesus, you can know that your name is in the book. 
Otherwise, you would not have come. See, nobody comes to Jesus to get their name in the book. They come to Jesus because their name's already in the book and has been from the foundations of the world. And if your name is in the book, then you will never know the lake of fire and the reality, the dreadful, terrifying reality of eternal wrath you will know the new heaven and the new earth that will occupy our attention for the remainder of our study of Revelation. The invitation is real. It is free. It is gracious. 